This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we begin with the election in the UK with Kevin Ovenden. Jeremy Corbyn has launched a new radical manifesto for labor that promotes a vision for the country with broad appeal that challenges and counteracts the politics of austerity, despair, and decline that have characterized the last several decades. We get Kevin's analysis. We then turn to Yoav Pellet in Israel to help us understand what happens next now that interim Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu Israel's longest-serving prime minister, has been indicted on three counts of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Neither Netanyahu's Likud nor Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party have been able so far to form a government since Israel's second election in 2019, and the indictments put Israel in uncharted political territory. We'll get Yoav's insights. And finally, we talk to political sociologist Gabriel Hetlin about Bolivia, now caught in a spiral of horrors as the far-right regime of terror consolidates its rule after the ouster of Evo Morales on November 10th. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Kevin Ovenden back with us again. He's a blogger. He's the author of Syriza Inside the Labyrinth and divides his time between London and Athens. And we're talking to him in Athens today. And we always talk to Kevin because he is just as much into British politics as Greek politics. And now Jeremy Corbyn has launched the most radical labor manifesto in decades, promising an investment blitz. And uh, predictably, the Financial Times has called it nothing more than a blueprint for socialism in one country. And there's a lot of issues to talk about. But given how much Brexit has sucked the oxygen out of politics in the UK, very much like Trump and impeachment now are doing here, Corbyn is campaigning. The election is to be held on the 12th of December on a vision for a future that promises real change for the majority of the population after more than a decade of austerity and cuts under successive conservative governments. But let's hear from Jeremy Corbyn himself. We have a very short clip of him announcing the manifesto. Labour's manifesto is a manifesto for hope. That is what this document is. We will unleash a record investment blitz and it will rebuild our schools, our hospitals, care homes and the housing so desperately need in every town, every city and every region. So a Labour government will ensure the big oil and gas corporations that profit from heating up our planet, will shoulder the burden and pay their fair share through a just transition tax. We will get Brexit sorted within six months. We will secure a sensible deal that protects manufacturing and the Good Friday Agreement, and then put it to a public vote alongside the option of remaining in the EU. And yes... Let's be clear, we will scrap university tuition fees. We are going to give you the very fastest full-fibre broadband for free. That is real change. And Labour will scrap universal credit. It's time for real change. Thank you. So, Kevin Ovenden, there you have it in very abbreviated form. Tell me what you first think about what's in this manifesto. 
Well, the uh, peroration from Jeremy summed it up. It's a call for and an appeal to the sentiment for real change. You can go through lots of the different policy areas, and I'll mention a couple in a, in a moment. But I'd say the big thing is this, that we've had, as you say, 10 years of austerity. Uh, that's the word given to something which is not terribly new, which is squeezing working people in order to pay off the crimes and the problems accumulated by the rich. Prior to that in Britain, we had probably next to Chile and to the United States, the birth of neoliberalism, privatization, uh, which, insofar as it worked in creating economic growth, saw a huge upsurge of wealth from the bottom to the top. And prior even to that, we had uh, many decades of underinvestment in Britain, even in the good social democratic years, the ones that people uh, like my parents look back to as being, well, a bit more equal and so on. They were, but it still wasn't that, that brilliant. And so this is a call for, for change, call for change around things like tuition fees, where the individual person, the ordinary person, meets power in the marketplace, it's also a change, uh, to some extent, a uh, limited extent, but it's a considerable extent, into the ownership of these things, of uh, big business and of uh, capital and the way that we run the economy. There was a, a survey which found that 60% of people in Britain believe that the economy should be either moderately or radically transformed. Only 2% said it should stay the same. So it's an appeal to that. I'd say that the biggest thing around the, the biggest, the, the, the most important thing for me around this manifesto, which is an advance upon the manifesto in 2017 when there was an election, is that it is much more explicit that this, of course, is a benefit to the planet, to the environment, to society and people in general, but it does involve an element of class confrontation. Uh, there were 150 million, sorry, 150 billionaires in Britain. A third of them have donated to the Tory party. Not one of them has donated to the Labour Party. <laughs> so there is a sense in this manifesto that there'll have to be some kind of conflict with big business, what Bernie Sanders calls the billionaire class, and so on. And I think that's good. I think that's the right uh, direction for the Labour Party to go in. Not just that we need more investment, better rail, um, a, a, a sensible organisation of water, electricity, uh, and things like that, which even some capitalists are in favour of, uh, because they know that the, the current system isn't working. So it's not just that, it's that there has to be a real transformation and an element of class antagonism. So that's what I took from the manifesto. And Kevin, as you say, it's, it's really hard not to find something, anything that you wouldn't like in this manifesto. It's like Bernie Sanders' program, a radical social democratic agenda that would appeal to the vast majority. And as you say as well, it counteracts the politics of austerity and decline and despair uh, that the Tories have championed and labor, new labor before it. And the results, of course, are everywhere to see. There's been a drop in the standard of living. There's been upward redistribution of wealth, privatization is becoming synonymous with dilapidation, disrepair, and dysfunction, which is sort of funny because that's what they used to say about public-owned projects. But I guess it begs the question, 
and we don't have a tremendous amount of time, but what is it that allowed the Tories to win for so long with this program of austerity? The country's mostly working class. The Tories yet have promised more and more austerity, more and more cuts. How did they win? Well, of course, they don't promise austerity in those terms. They say they come forward with a a, a false and failed economics, which says that if we drive down the uh, public debt, the debt which was not accrued by the public but accrued by the private sector, by the banks in in, in large part, uh, post-2008, then this will unleash growth and everybody will be able to, to gain. So they have all sorts of these ideological positions. There's also nationalism and appealing to an anti-leftism that you don't want to do anything too radical. Really quite a conservatism. You know, the Tory party is called the Conservative Party, so <laughs> don't change things that radically. That's what they appeal to. I think the biggest thing that they appeal to, to be honest, is when scepticism, a good scepticism amongst working-class people, gives way to cynicism. And I'd put it like this, that it's good to be sceptical, to look at the people above, the people who are asking for your vote, the people who are in powerful positions in society, and be sceptical about what their motivations are. But when it gives way to cynicism, the idea that nothing changes, they're all lying, uh, everything is fake, everything is fake news, and so on, then... Largely that benefits the right, and it's quite interesting in this election that the the main Tory campaign, where they've done some outrageous Trumpist things, which they know they're going to be caught out about, but there is a logic to their main campaign, which is um, all politics is corrupt. Don't believe in any of it. There's going to be no change. Everybody sells out. And I think that's the biggest thing that they appeal to. They appeal to the, you use the word, uh, demoralization among working people generally. And that's what this campaign by Labour has to crack, in my view. It's not that people think, um, oh, I don't like what they're offering. It's much more fundamental. It is, can they deliver? Do they want to deliver? And then amongst a significant number of working people is the idea, if they're going to deliver this, there's going to be a huge clash with the vested interests. And are they going to carry it through? That's what I think the election is going to turn on for Labour. And what do you think are the prospects? Do you think that Corbyn can win? We know that... You know, he's brought more people into the Labour Party. It's now the largest party in Europe that, you know, he didn't win in 2017. And the polls, if you can believe them, don't show him in the lead. But let me just ask you, you know, frankly, do you think that he can win? I think Labour will increase in this election, just as it did in 2017. And one reason is that even though the attacks against them are very nasty, anti-left, vicious, what the attacks do, even if Labour weren't doing it, is to outline the the class reality in Britain. Radical change versus some status quo, and if you go for radical change, you'll end up, you know, as you quoted the Financial Times, socialism in one country and so on. (laughs) Now, that makes sense to me uh, as a term. It makes sense to you. I don't think the vast majority of people in Britain have heard of socialism in one country. But they do know that there is something really going on about this. They will gain. 
Let me ask you just on this bit, just just interrupt and, and focus it a little bit. We heard Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto in extreme brief, but what he's doing and is so, you know, captivating is that he is not only completely changing, but he's focusing on, like Sanders and Warren here, a Green New Deal, that looking at the yeah. climate crisis and as a way that, you know, to deal with climate, you have to deal with infrastructure, you have to deal with jobs and healthcare and everything else, and it's all part of a piece. And he also adds to that, as we heard, free university and free broadband, which is a, a new yeah. part about it. And these are all incredibly democratizing you know, planks in the platform. So as I said at the very beginning, given that he's doing that and that the other side has only been talking about Brexit, 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 and it sucked the oxygen out and he's wisely not talking about that. How will that play out? And then I guess after that, just the final question, if he won, would Brexit just go away? Well, I think it will play out in people talking about this, and it already has done. This was supposed to be, all the pundits said, the Brexit election. It's not the Brexit election. People are talking about all the things that you've mentioned. They're talking about the National Health Service. They're talking about what kind of future for our society, for my kids, and so on. And in my view, we're now in the last uh, three weeks of the campaign, which is the point at which the majority of people switch in. I know that some of us discuss politics a lot, but most people don't. The majority switch into a general election in the last two or three weeks. As that happens, I think the Labour will go up. How far it can go up, uh, I don't know. I think that the big problem that they have, as far as accumulated difficulties, including opposition within his own party for um, adopting this kind of radical uh, uh, perspective, the big problem they have is um, the credibility problem. And it's not credibility as in, can you afford these things, do the numbers add up, not the normal credibility. It's, are you a force that can really transform society? And there I think it will depend a lot upon whether the very good campaign so far can generate the popular mobilisation and enthusiasm of uh, 2017 and even more so to advance. I think, if you were to push me, that there will be a a big Labour advance, but a hung parliament where no party has a majority, and that this would fit, funnily enough, with uh, lots of the politics in Europe. um, Not to mention Israel. the political system (laughs) is breaking down. Right. Okay, so speculate a little bit further on that. So you would have then, in that case, you've got Tories, you've got the Lib Dems, you've got the SNP in Scotland that said that if Labour wins, they won't make a coalition with them, but they'll vote with them, which is virtually the same thing. And then you have, of course, you know, Labour. So how can you talk a little bit about what sort of that would look like? Well, what I think it would look like is this, is that you have... In that situation, you have a Tory party which has failed and failed on its hard right over Brexit and failed in terms of big business interests. You'd have a Liberal Party which uh, would also have failed because their main aim in this election is to damage Labour and try to create a a kind of uh, return to a Clintonite, Blairite uh, centre uh, of Labour and them. Uh, moving back to uh, what we had, you know, in the uh, early 2000s and, uh, and, and, and so on. And you'd have a Labour Party, which is uh, still led by the left, which would have defied 
the worst expectations. That's uh, a scenario. There are many other scenarios, but I think the big thing is this, is that what Labour's tapped with this manifesto is a call for change. How far it can carry it through in this election, I don't know. But they are absolutely right to um, hit upon this uh, call for radical transformation. And you touched, up, touched upon something earlier, which is it's not just about a government, if you like, giving out policies to make things better, to improve the minimum wage here, to improve health care there. The key thing that they could potentially unleash is the sense of people being able to fight to transform things themselves. So I think the biggest thing in the manifesto was to say that if we're in government, we will remove uh, a lot of the restrictions upon working class people organising at work, upon the trade union organisation, the ability to strike and so on. Now, if Labour was in for just six months and did that, I think you'd see uh, that mood for change welling up from below just as much as it's come from that clip of Jeremy Corbyn that you heard. Perfect. And it's we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for that, Kevin Ovenden. We'll revisit this subject as the election continues for the next three weeks. But I want to thank you for your analysis and insights. Kevin Ovenden is speaking to us from Athens, Greece. He's a blogger. His book is Syriza Inside the Labyrinth, but he divides his time between London and Athens and follows both incredibly closely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin Ovenden. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to revisit what's going on in Israel with Yoav Pelid. He's a university uh, professor emeritus of Tel Aviv University. We're speaking to him in Tel Aviv. His latest book is The Religionization of Israeli Society. And he joined us not too long ago to talk about the second election in one year in Israel that uh, did not produce a conclusive result. And at that point, Prime Minister Netanyahu was tasked with trying to form a government, which he failed to do. And then it went to Benny Gantz, the leader of Blue and White, to do the same thing. That hasn't happened yet. But the most, I guess, stunning news is that now Netanyahu has been indicted on three counts on charges of bribery, fraud and breach of trust in a set of like very long-running corruption cases and that he was trying to avoid by becoming prime minister and having some immunity, and now that he can't form a government, his political future is in doubt. He's the longest-serving prime minister. So, Yoav, let's try to unpack all of this. Maybe we could just start with what the charges are. Well, like you said, the charges are uh, one count of bribery, two counts of, of fraud and breach of trust. And so these are three different cases. And on these, I mean, what is the scope of this kind of, let's not say breach of trust, but on corruption and fraud? The bribery, you mean? Bribery, yeah, I meant yes. that. Yeah, I mean, the, the fraud and breach of trust, which is the, the same violation, so I think it's three years and the bribery is seven years, if I'm not mistaken. And so the question, I guess, that comes out of this, and this is, is how can he continue in office? And does he, you know, we do know that 
one of the reasons that he wanted to stay in office was, you know, to be able to have the impunity. They can't, I guess, indict a sitting prime minister. But now he's in a limbo, right? So no, they can they can indict a sitting prime minister. Of course, they can indict him, but he can he he has to ask the Knesset for immunity, like any member of the Knesset. Now the problem right now is that the request for immunity has to go to a particular committee of the Knesset. Now, since there is no functioning Knesset, because after the elections no coalition was formed, there are no committees in the Knesset. So there's, there's nobody to ask immunity from. And the, and the result is that the indictment so far is purely theoretical, because before Bibi can, or anybody can ask the Knesset committee for immunity, the attorney general cannot really work, operate on the basis of this indictment, bring him to court on the basis of this indictment. You see, Bibi actually gains from the situation that the political system is now in. Does this mean, given what you just said, because both parties that won the most votes have been have failed so far to form a government, that the government isn't functioning? Can you explain how that works? There is no government. There is an interim government right now, and, and Bibi is not a prime minister. He's an interim prime minister. Now, no, nobody knows what is the legal situation regarding an indicted in, <coughs> interim prime minister, wow. because the law never thought about that. But uh, the, the real issue right now, the real legal issue right now, is can a member of Knesset who has been indicted for bribery can a person like that form a government? Wow. And has this... Yeah, go ahead. I I was just going to ask, has anything like this ever happened before in Israel? No, so this is... No, it hasn't happened. So this is uncharted legal legal territory. Mm. Now, the Attorney General just today said that there are legal difficulties with the idea that uh, an indicted member of Knesset can form a government. He didn't say he can do it. He said there are legal difficulties. Now, there's no question the whole thing is coming, is going to the, to the High Court of Justice on Sunday. On Sunday, there will be a number of appeals relating to various angles of the situation. They will go to the High Court of Justice, and then uh, we'll see uh, what the court says and, and how soon it's, it says it. Well, this is all moving rather rapidly in any case, and I'm glad I've asked you because you not only taught political science, you're also a lawyer have with a law degree, so you can help us understand the legal implications of, as you said, uncharted territory. Yes. Would a third election, the last time we spoke, I asked you if you thought there'd be a third election, and that just at some point would have been thought unthinkable in one year, but would that just resolve all of the problems, not from Netanyahu and somebody who has to come before the court and be charged, but in terms of making the society governable? Well, it depends on the results of the third <laughs> election. Nobody knows what the results of that future election will be. So uh, it, nobody can say. But there is another possibility that we also discuss, and that is that Lieberman, who's really an extreme right-winger, would finally join um, mm. Likud and, and let Bibi form a government right now. If Bibi can still form a government, which, as I said, this is a question, but if not Bibi, maybe somebody else from Likud. So uh, my view has always been that Lieberman will eventually join. It's only a question of the price. Now his price has just gotten much, much higher. But it's, I think it's still possible. They, they still have three weeks to uh, try to form a government.
Mm -hmm. And uh, after the three weeks, there will be uh, new elections. But three weeks is a long time. And I think at the end, there's a good possibility that Lieberman will, will get what he wants and he will join that right-wing bloc and there will be a government. But does this, I'm just asking how this is playing in Israeli society. So on Sunday, Netanyahu goes before the high court where they decide whether, you know, what to do next, essentially, with these indictments while he is trying to form a government or, and as you said, acting or interim prime minister. If there's a third election and he's still the person in charge, I mean, aren't there political implications to this? Won't this be harmful to the chances of Likud? And I guess the other part of this question, are there internal battles within Likud to get him to step down as leader so they can move forward? Okay, these are two separate questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, regarding the, the chances of Likud, Maybe just like Trump, he has a base. About 40% of the voters are his base, and his base will follow him no matter what, and they, they believe everything he says. They accuse the legal system of, of uh, persecuting him and so on. And just like Trump, it's, it's an exact replica. As far as somebody could so far, nobody dares say anything openly, uh, except one person that that will come to in a minute. But there are... People say that behind closed doors they are whispering something about replacing uh, Netanyahu. The one person who said something so far very, very mild is, is Gideon Saar, by the way, a former student of mine, <laughs> okay. who's uh, been, been Bibi's nemesis in Likud for a long time, and Bibi pushed him aside. The question is, according to the Likud bylaws, if there are new elections, there would have to be primaries for the head of the, of the list. Bibi, of course, wants to do away with the primaries. He wants to pass a decision that there will not be new primaries for the, if there are third elections. Now, this guy, Gidon Saar, said, I think there should be primaries if there is a new election now. And that's the one thing, the one small sign, weak sign of rebellion that, that, has, been, uh, that has been expressed so far. Can I ask a question about that, Yoav Pelled? When you mention primaries, we're talking about the leadership of a party. Is that determined by the members of the party or by the, yes. as in a primary of the society at large? No, no, the members, only the members of the party. Okay, so... Yeah, it's, it's not an open primary, it's just the members of the party. But so a lot of people. This is really incredible. So I guess, you know, if that were to be the case, that they were able to have the primary, how long does all of that take? Well, it takes time. I mean, according to the law, the elections can be only 90 days after there is a decision to go for an election. Now, they have three weeks now to still try to form a government, and if they fail, then there will be elections three months from now, meaning in March. Mm -hmm. And the primaries within a party could be done very quickly, but they have quite a lot of time. Now, at this point, nobody doubts that if there is a primary... Uh, Bibi will win. This guy, Gideon Saar, who, who says he wants a primary, that doesn't mean that he's going to win the primary. <laughs> okay. And given that you've sta stated that Netanyahu's got a solid base of 40%, which is even larger than Trump's base, which is probably around 29-30%, but as you said, who follow him anywhere and, and, and dismiss all of these legal, you know, what, impediments. But so what do you think is going to happen? It's a terrible thing to ask because it's so hard to even have predicted what's happened so far. But, 
you've got you're there and you've got your sort of finger on the pulse. Well, it's it's very hard to tell. There's so many open questions. There's a question what the High Court of Justice is going to decide on a number of different issues, all related to the same situation. But it will come to the court under uh, under several uh, different appeals. So the court will have to decide on, on on a number of issues. Nobody at this point knows what the court will decide. People can guess. But it's very hard. And what about just finally, you know, sorry, about blue and white? Where are they and Benny Gantz? Have they completely failed? Are they still in the running? What's going on? Yeah, blue and white didn't have a chance because when people count the number of seats they have as against uh, Likud, like, you know, 55 against 53, they count the Arab parties. But the Arab parties don't count. The Arab parties are not really potential coalition partners. Even Gantz said it many times. So there's no question that, that blue and white or guns personally can form a government. It was, there, there was no chance of that to begin with. This is just game. The only, the only chances are for Bibi either with blue and white, which blue and white right now certainly will not do, or again, Lieberman agrees finally if he gets paid enough to get into the government with uh, with good with baby, these are the uh, the options. Well, thank you so much for that. And obviously, it means that there's not going to be a, a giant change in Israel, no matter what. But but it's but it's incredible that all of this is going on. And of course, I'm going to yeah. come back to you again to ask you know once we see how it unfolds after the court decides, and as we see in the next three months, what's going to happen in the next election, and whether or not, as you just said, that Lieberman is once again the deal-breaker. Yes, he's been the deal-breaker the last two elections, and he's the deal-breaker now. Now, uh, I think we also discussed this. Lieberman is very secretive, and it's a one-man show, the political party. Nobody there counts for anything, only him. So, People don't know exactly what he thinks, but I think if you think about it logically or rationally, then he's simply waiting to get a high enough a price in order to join uh, Bibi and Likud and form a right-wing government. Well, well, I guess we'll have to wait to see if that's the case, and I want to thank you again, Yoav Pelov. And Yoav is uh, a professor emeritus at Tel Aviv University, and go check out his latest book, The Religionization of Israeli Society. It, it really explains a lot on how the right were able to you know, become so important for so long there. Thanks so much for joining us today, Yoav. Thank you. Thanks, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jackman Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to talk about Bolivia with Gabriel Hyatland. I've never had him on the show before, but he has been writing some incredibly provocative and insightful pieces that have appeared both in the Washington Post and in Jacobin. Gabriel Hitlin is a political sociologist. He specializes in Latin America. He writes on Venezuela. He's at SUNY Albany. And as I mentioned, you can find his pieces, Jacobin and the Washington Post, but also he's written for The Nation, NACLA, Qualitative Sociology, and Latin American Perspectives. And I'm very glad to have you here today, Gabriel. Great to be with you, Susie. Thanks so much. Thank you. So let's just begin with the events of the last few weeks. Evo Morales resigned because he was forced out in what was clearly a coup, although the mainstream press has not has mostly refused to call it that. But as you state in your Jacobin 
article, Bernie Sanders is the only candidate here to call it as it is. When he was asked, Bernie said, at the end of the day, it was the military who intervened and asked Morales to leave. When the military intervenes, that's called a coup. So let's just start with that and have you summarize for us what's happened so far. Sure, absolutely. And it's a, you know, a complicated situation with a lot of uh, dynamics that go back a number of years. So I'll do as quick a summary as I can. But um, as your listeners probably know, Eva Morales was elected uh, by, a, you know, a very strong majority in 2005 um, and has been Bolivia's president since, and you know, uh, until he was pushed out a couple of weeks ago. And he was very successful in terms of reducing poverty. He was incredibly popular. He was reelected twice with over 60 percent of the vote. And his this was running for an unprecedented fourth term. And so that's important because it was very controversial mm. within Bolivia that he was even running in this election. And that's an important sort of background piece that um, the Constitution, which uh, Morales actually passed under his watch in 2009, limited presidents to a single re-election. And so in 2016, there was a referendum to change the Constitution, and Morales narrowly lost that referendum. That itself was somewhat controversial. There was a sort of dirty campaign about a love child, and, Mm. um, you know, it wasn't clear if a love child ever existed, and all sorts of dirty sort of stuff that seemed to have possibly swung the election. We don't know for sure, but he did lose that election. And then about a year and a half later, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal in Bolivia, the highest electoral court, ruled that it would be a violation of Morales' human rights for him not to run for re-election. So he did have a legal sort of ability to run. The OAS at the time, that's the Organization of American States, said it was fine, said it was legal for him to run, which is an important thing to keep in mind. But many Bolivians were upset, so it's important to sort of keep that in mind as well. So then fast forward to the recent election, which happened on October 20th, and Morales clearly, without any dispute, came in first um, and didn't get uh, 50% of the vote, which meant that the percent by which he won over the second-place finisher was very important. And there's still a lot of dispute about that, and I, I think it's important to say to the best of my knowledge, it's not entirely clear what happened exactly with that election. And I have spent a lot of this week really digging in. Um, but Should it we... is clear that Morales won the election. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, finish doing this and then we'll go right into that, because I think that's a very key part is to understand what, you know, was fishy about this election or not. Sure. Yeah. And I say it's a little unclear what is or isn't fishy about it. But anyway, so he won by... You know, he officially was given 10 percent, 10.5 percent about in the election, maybe a touch more than that on the election day. But there was a transmission of quick count that got suspended. And we can talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, So immediately um, the opposition said that there was fraud. And it's important to back up even before and say that they were claiming for months before the election that if Morales won in the first round, it could only happen through fraud. They obviously didn't know that, but they were saying that. So they laid the groundwork to claim fraud. And there's some, you know, sort of explosive new audio evidence suggesting that there was a bigger plot actually being hatched for a while. But we can we can also talk about that. So that led to a lot of instability and protests within Bolivia, just the sort of closeness of the election and the widespread assumption on the part of some, but certainly not all Bolivians, that Morales had stolen the election and, again, that he shouldn't have been running at all. So there was protests which started very quickly after the election. The Organization of American States, the OAS, played a very important role because 
the day after the election, this is on October 21st, they issued a statement saying that what had been suspended, a quick count uh, on the night of the election, came back with a higher percentage of the votes counted the next day. And the initial results showed him at about 7.9 percent, and then later results showed him over 10 percent, which allowed him to win in the first round. That's the margin he needed. With If you have at least 40 percent of the vote and you win by 10 percent, then you win the first round. If you don't, you go to a second round with the top two finishers. And so there was this, a switch. But, you know, some people say that it was very plausible. And we can go through the argument. It, it, indeed, there is some plausibility to him winning, and there's some questions about it at the same time. But that led to protests. So there was several weeks of protests. There was initially a call for him to hold new elections, which he pushed back on and wasn't willing to do initially. And then that relatively quickly turned into a call for him to resign. It's not entirely clear to me who was the very first to issue that call, but very quickly that call was taken up by a far-right businessman from Santa Cruz, which is in the eastern lowlands, Luis Fernando Camacho, who is also a sort of fervent Christian the leader of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee, which has played a very destabilizing role in the beginning years of the Morales administration, you know, going back to 2006 to 2008, and was really leading protests, calling for his resignation. Camacho dramatically flew to La Paz to do that. And so that was the sort of framework in which things were developing for several weeks after Morales' election. There was very large protests, primarily but not exclusively middle class, um, and they got taken over by the right. They did have some popular and some left elements, but they weren't, you know, huge. It was a sort of marginal left, marginal popular elements. Um, in the very last days before Morales resigned, another very important development happened where there was police mutinies in, I think, at least five major cities within the country. Santa Cruz and a couple other lowland cities um, have these mutinies. And that really sort of shifted things. So I think if we want to put to something, point to something as decisive, many people, and I'm starting to agree, that think the police mutiny is even more important than the military. Um, although the military stepped in then on the 10th and suggested Morales resign, which he did within an hour, uh, my understanding. So very quickly after that. Can, so can you go back just... Of, you know, one second, I'm sorry, just just a little bit more on what, what did it mean to have the police mutinies in those various areas? Yeah, so the police mutinies was a huge shift because it also meant that the military was unwilling to sort of confront the police. And it's important to note that, you know, going all the way back to 2003 and maybe even before that, there has been shootouts between police and military. So there's a history of that happening in Bolivia and the military did not want that to happen now. So as soon as the police mutinied, the military's playbook shifted a little bit, and they were not willing to get in that sort of, you know, intra-security force violence. It's not entirely clear if there was people in the military plotting a coup, but it does seem like people outside were, and, you know, we can talk about that. But mm. by shifting, you know, having state security forces against Morales, that really started to shift the internal dynamics within the state. My understanding is that Morales lost the support of the military over the weekend. So the mutiny started on the 8th of November and continued on the 9th. And I think by the 9th, Morales did not have full support of the military. I think his palace guard was not willing to fully defend him at that point. And my understanding is that he left La Paz. I'm not sure exactly when, but I think he left before the weekend was over, well before he resigned. And then the military, again, did step in and suggest on the air that he should leave office. The police mutiny itself is, you know, somewhat complicated. There seems to be a bit of an economic grievance aspect to it that 
the military was privileged under Morales more than the police, and so there was some resentment around that. I'm pretty sure that there was some racism that existed, and then the broader political dynamics. In particular, the police were really tired. I mean, they were tired of engaging in sort of, you know, the monitoring and, you know, not actively repressing the protest because Morales told them not to, you know, repress the protest too hard. A really big shift compared to what's happening now, we should note. So the police community just really sort of shifted, I think, calculations within the state. And this was, a, you know, a force with guns that was, vi- you know, sort of rising up and uh, calling for Morales' resignation. So I think that was a really critical factor. And the military stepped in, but it was after things had already really moved in a dangerous direction. This is really good as a summary. And of course, there's it's complicated with a lot of moving parts, as you say. And you mentioned not just, you know, the polarization of the society and the fact that the middle class was, you know, angered, but also that there were the disputes between the military and the police. And then there's also the racism between, you know, the indigenous population and, and the rest. So and of course, Morales is at the focus of all of that. And it's the fact that he didn't have squeaky clean you know, election results, it just compounded the error. But you write in your article, you call that Bolivia is descending into a full-blown far-right military dictatorship. And I want to just go there and then we'll come back to, you know, the various, the OAS versus the other reports on this thing. But immediately, this woman who's a senator, a far-right-wing senator, Jenny Nanias, steps in. Her party got 4% in the election and somehow now she proclaims herself as a legitimate president and is moving or maybe interim, I'm not sure. But can you take it from there? Yeah, absolutely. So Añez is from the lowland state of Beni, and it's sort of similar in some ways to Santa Cruz. It's considered a whiter state. It's considered, you know, there's certainly been history of virulent racism in the state, or department, I should say. It's sort of equivalent to a U.S. state. And she's very closely allied with Camacho, the eastern lowland businessman from Santa Cruz. She's also fervently Christian, and she has a clear history of racist statements. There's been a lot of tweets that have surfaced some of which I believe she's alleged to have called indigenous practices satanic. Some of the tweets, it's important to note, seem to be false, but others are are not false. So that's her background. But the day that Morales resigned, this is sort of leading up to Anya sort of being declared president on the 12th. Uh, Morales resigned, the vice president resigned, the head of the Bolivian Chamber of Deputies, the lower house of Congress, and then the Senate in Bolivia all resigned. All of those positions were held by the MAS, the Movement to Socialism ruling party. That cleared the way for an unprecedented constitutional situation. Bolivia's constitution does not contemplate a situation where all four people in line to be president have resigned. And so Anya, by making a claim because the person in front of her, all of them, had resigned, she could then step into saying she's the acting president of the Senate because she was the vice president of the Senate. That's a sort of flimsy argument when people resigned specifically in the face of violence. So there was threats against MAS elected officials, I believe the Chamber of Deputies president, again from the MAS, his family members were kidnapped, other MAS officials had their houses burned, Morales' own house was ransacked, I think his sister's house was burned that day, so people were really scared. And so the resignations took place in this climate of fear, which automatically renders them incredibly dubious and incredibly questionable, and frankly, in you know, I think any reasonable person would say fully illegitimate. If somebody puts a gun to your head and you resign, that's really different than voluntarily resigning. But nonetheless, that's the sort of background. So Anya's then on the 12th 
declares herself president, but she does so in an almost empty Senate chamber because most senators who still controlled two-thirds of the Senate from previous elections and would still control the majority in the most recent election were boycotting the session in part because Morales, who is now in exile in Mexico, seemed to be saying they should boycott. But some of, some of them were clearly boycotting out of fear for their safety. Um, and it wasn't clear that they would have any sort of security to protect them. And there was all these going on. So in that climate, Anya declares herself president. Um, there's pictures that show she's surrounded by the military. Um, it's almost crazy. I mean, I've seen people tweeting saying, couldn't they get somebody who wasn't in the military to put the presidential sash on her? But they didn't. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's just really sort of glaring images. She immediately declares that the Bible has returned to the palace, a statement that is widely seen as sort of a racist slap in the face to Bolivians, not because Bolivians are not Christian, but because there's other sort of indigenous religious traditions, indigenous spirituality, and making such a strong statement like that has a lot of weight within Bolivia. Two days earlier, Camacho had entered the palace and kissed a Bible on top of a Bolivian flag. Later that day, the Wipfala flag, which is an indigenous sort of symbol of indigenous identity, was publicly burned. There was police in Santa Cruz who were on video cutting the Wipfala flag off of their uniforms in again, in the city of Santa Cruz. So there's these public expressions of racism, which are directly associated with Añez. Uh, when Camacho was there on the 10th, he was with a pastor who proclaimed Pachamama will never return to the palace. So all of that meant that indigenous people in Bolivia, who were not necessarily Morales fans, not necessarily even Masistas, meaning Mas supporters, were really upset. So there was a series of marches that were happening. Um, but... Anya, just to get back to her self-declaration as president, um, that was just highly dubious. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's hard to see it as anything but extremely illegitimate. Nonetheless, it was actually de- declared to be legitimate by the same controversial uh, Supreme Electoral Tribunal that had declared uh, Morales' eligibility to run in 2017, also declared her the legitimate acting president. So we should at least note that. And that has one important effect of proving that that court wasn't in the pocket of Morales, if they can make such, you know, dramatically different uh, opinions. Um, and then after Anya's gets elected, all hell breaks loose. And, you know, we can talk about that. And I, I think we should. Yeah, I think we should, too. And I just wanted to say that as you were describing this, it seemed that, as you said, you know, it's patently illegitimate, but it seemed to have some veneer of constitutionality that would have allowed Anya's to do this. And for, of course, the rest of the world, Trump was absolutely, uh, as you say, uh, recognized her with glee. And that, you know, she's moving forward now in what seems to be the consolidation, as you say, of a full-blown far-right military dictatorship. And people are dying. So, and the situation is very dangerous. But as you described earlier, the society is polarized and there's a lot of support for mass. So let's uh, see where you take this next in terms of talking about what can happen and whether or not the, we call it a coup or not is moot at this point. It's it, there's there's other considerations. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's still, in my view, remains a coup, but there's some complicating factors which we may or may not have time to get into about that. Um, there's also one glimmer of hope, which I don't think I've uh, mentioned, certainly not in any writing, but it's just happening today. It seems like Moss and the 
uh, Anya's sort of regime and opposition parties may actually be agreeing to an elections in the future, and there may be an agreement tonight. So that would be somewhat controversial. There'd be aspects of it that many people would be critical of, but I think on balance it would be a very good thing um, if it meant that there is some trajectory forward. But that is very still uncertain, and it's very late-breaking. So before we get to that, the horrors of the Anya's regime have been on full display. And um, basically, you know, the racism that was on display, the illegitimacy um, and the coup against Morales upset many people. Not all of them Masistas, not all of them the same sort of groups, but there was lots and lots of protests. I've read somewhere that there was at least 70, if not 100 blockades around the country all over the place. There seems to be dozens of marches of many different popular sector organizations, some of which calling for Morales to come back, some of which just sort of protesting the racism. So a sort of heterogeneity, and I think it's important to recognize that. But those marches, in some instances, were met with ferocious repression by the Anya's regime. Um, so one of the most horrific uh, instances happened in uh, the town of Sacaba, which is in Cochabamba. It's outside of uh, Bolivia's one of the bigger cities in Bolivia, I think it's the sort of uh, third or fourth biggest city, depending on how you count El Alto and La Paz. And there was a, this, this was, you know, specifically Morales supporters, cocaleros, the coca growers, uh, who were trying to march into the city of Cochabamba. Um, all the reports I've seen suggest that they were not engaged in any sort of violence, and they were massacred. And I believe that there was nine people who were killed. The death toll rose over the course of reporting because some people died in the hospital. And so this was horrific, but the day before it happened, Anya's had actually in secret uh, issued a decree saying that security forces, including the military, would not be held accountable for the lethal use of force. So that was essentially a license to kill and utterly terrifying. And the next day, they engaged in just that sort of thing. Earlier this week, there was another massacre which happened in El Alto, in Sancata, which is a sort of place where there was a gas is, is held, and they were trying to get gas through a blockade down to the city of La Paz. And at least five people, is my understanding, and maybe more were killed in this massacre in La Paz. Horrifically, there was a funeral march that was happening, I think, from El Alto to La Paz. So El Alto is a, a big, largely predominantly indigenous city above La Paz, the capital of Bolivia. And there was a march that I think went into the center of La Paz, a funeral procession, and the military broke it up with gas. I mean, they sort of were, you know, tear gas that they were spraying on people. And some of the coffins, people had to flee for their safety. So just mm. horrific sort of things happening just in the last couple of days. There's also been a real persecution of mosque officials. The new interior minister has referred to some previous mosque ministers under Morales as animals who he would hunt down. He has called mosque senators out and said if they engage in sedition, which he said they are, and subversion, he will also track them down and lock them up. Um, there's been instances of the police physically blocking mosque senators from getting into the building to actually practice in the Senate. Um, that happened a week ago. They were subsequently allowed in, but some of them were roughed up. They have bruises. They have torn clothing. Um, there were statements that Anya's made earlier, I think she's backed away from them, but I'm not entirely sure, saying that Moss may not be allowed to run in any subsequent elections, might be declared illegal as a political party. Um, mm. There's also been suppression against free media within Bolivia. There's been statements by the new uh, Minister of Communications saying that uh, journalists who engage in sedition will be 
um, arrested and even if, you know, if they're foreign journalists sent out of Bolivia. There's a video of an Al Jazeera reporter who is tear gassed on live TV. Yeah. I've heard reports from, from Forrest Hilton, you know, the guest you had last week, saying that friends he has who are journalists, this is in the London Review books for people who want to read it, are in hiding, that they're terrified for their lives. So there's a real, you know, sense of repression, a real sense of fear. Um, I think the death toll, as far as I know, is somewhere close to 30. I mean, it's evolving, and I'm not sure. It may be more than that. It may be, you know, a little bit less. I believe there was at least 700 injuries a couple of days ago, so I'd be very surprised if that number's not above thousand i think at least a hundred people if not more have been detained and locked up so you know there's all the sorts of signs of a right-wing dictatorship taking place and and it's terrifying and i should just say that i tried to talk to people inside bolivia journalists and who were frightened to do so because of the, the reasons that you've said we only have two minutes left now but you've given us an incredibly good sort of overview of what's going on but you ended up and i was going to ask you so what could happen next in this context? It's clearly that there has to be international reaction, international solidarity, but, but new elections, as you say, are probably on the horizon. Can you just state very briefly, like, what about, you know, how clean can they be? Would, will OAS act again in a sort of biased way to legitimate them? Do we have any ideas? Maybe you could just round it out and, and say what you think is on the horizon. Yeah, I think very briefly the way OAS acted in the uh, October 20th election makes them incredibly suspect. They acted in a politically biased and very dangerous way, so I don't think we should trust them. There's other things to say about the election, but I don't know that we have a lot of time. But there is a little bit of hope, which I think we should end with, that, you know, there's been talks between the MAS and, um, you know, other parties, including folks associated with Anya's, it seems from the latest news I've had that that is likely to actually get approved very soon, maybe even tonight, um, although it, you know, it could certainly take longer. And that would lead to new elections. The latest news I saw was that Moss would be allowed to participate, which is very, very important, but that Morales and Alvaro Garcia Linera, his vice president, would not be allowed to participate. As far as I understand, there's a split within the Moss between people who are wanting to go forward without Morales and Garcia Limera and other people who don't want to participate. If that doesn't happen, it seems like the momentum is moving towards having the elections. But I think that will definitely be a bone of contention. Um, and I think for having, you know, the ability to have free and fair elections really depends on the political climate. So they absolutely have to stop the repression. They have to stop these incredibly dangerous statements. They have to stop intimidating Moss and any other leftist political forces within Bolivia there needs to be accountability for the things that have already happened. If that doesn't happen, I don't see how we can call it a free and fair election. Um, if it does happen, we could. And I think the other thing to note is that Bolivian social movements historically, and in you know, the last 20, 30 years, you know, the last 2000 to 2005, they were incredibly strong. And they're showing a lot of strength now. It's complicated. There's many different forces on the ground. But the fact that we're seeing so much mobilization against Anya's, I think, is a crucial dynamic. And I would imagine that the political breakthrough, which hopefully is happening now in whatever flawed and, you know, criticized worthy way it may be occurring, would not have happened, I don't think, without that mobilization. And international pressure, I guess, is really key to say, make sure that Moss can participate, make sure that the repression stops, make sure that there's, you know, true freedom for media, true freedom for political organizing, and some accountability for the violence that has happened. 
perfect place to end it, and I want to thank you so much for that large overview of what's going on. I think there's questions to remain, and we'll revisit this as we see it developing. But just to let the listeners know, take a look at Gabrielle Hetland's articles on Bolivia in the Washington Post. Bolivia is falling into the grips of a brutal right-wing regime in Jacobin, something very similar in other articles, also one in NACLA. And Gabrielle Hetland is a political sociologist specializing on Latin America at SUNY Albany, speaking to us from New York, and he writes widely, but you can find his articles in Latin American Perspectives, Jacobin, Washington Post, NACLA, The Nation. Gabriel, thank you so much for all of that today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Susie. Real pleasure uh, speaking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.